Hello, Latinos in Clinical Research. Uh, we are here today with one of our webinars, and we have a very special guest, uh, Valentina Pereira. Valentina, thank you for being with us today. Um, we are very excited to be able to share this moment with you to learn more about your background and all the important work that you're doing for uh, the Latino community in the United States and around the world. Um, I'm going to read a little bit about Valentina because I think it's really important to set the stage for today. Valentina Pereda is a communications expert and a documentary filmmaker based in Los Angeles, covering many important topics such as security, migration, misinformation in the Latino community, political polarization, and the Northern Triangle geopolitics. Uh, Valentina began her career serving in key communications positions at the Obama administration, uh, including the White House. She also served as Deputy Director of Hispanic Communications and Hispanic Media, pardon me, at the White House. And she was overseeing a versatile portfolio that allowed her to work on national and international, with national and international press. She also became the Florida Press Secretary for Hillary Clinton in the 20, 2016 election. And in December 2016, Valentina moved to El Salvador to continue a career in video journalism and documentary filmmaking. What amazing work, Valentina. Upon returning to the United States, so after she was in El Salvador, she moved back to Los Angeles and she began researching misinformation in Spanish language and Latino spaces particularly the lack of regulation protecting Hispanics and other non-English speaking consumers. Right now, she consults on how to design communication campaigns that maximize the use of digital outlets for key social media uh, platforms such as WhatsApp, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and others. Valentina has an international relations degree from George Washington University, and she was a recent 2019 International Women's Media Foundation Fellow. Hello, Valentina. What amazing background, and thank you for being with Latinos in Clinical Research today. Thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, I've been all over the place, but I promise it's been intentional, not <laughs> as messy as it may sound. <laughs> no, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, just, just to know that we have Hispanics and the Hispanic media participation at the White House, and you being able to represent Latinos and Latinas in such an important building, La Casa Blanca, is so important. So thank you for, for taking the opportunity to speak with us today and also for being part of those important discussions and the dialogue that happens at the national, international level. I think precisely uh, we want to learn a little bit more about your background and, and what you've been doing specifically around you know, vaccines, uh, the vaccine outreach that you guys did to the Hispanic community. Um, I mean, there's just so much we can talk to you about, but we are so excited to have you and thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Well, I just want to clarify that I was in the Obama White House. I'm not in the Biden White House. So just to clarify. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great clarification. Obama, um, the Obama White House serving as the Hispanic media and now doing a lot of freelance work within um, kind of the same passion though, right? All, all tied to Latinos and Spanish media and the representation and ensuring that Hispanics get um, the right information. I mean, we were talking about it on one of the Latinos in clinical research groups. Um, we were talking about how misinformation for Hispanic audiences can have such an impact when it comes to getting people vaccinated, right? A lot of people say, no, I heard that the vaccine can do X, Y, Z, and then they later find out that it's not even true. 
Um, so it's, it's such an important topic. And I don't know if any of the, the co-founders have any, any thoughts, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's great to learn. Can you share a little bit about the, the study that you guys did and what you found or how that all came about? I think that's so interesting. Sure. So um, earlier this year, uh, I, along with another team of, uh, with uh, some other researchers, we were approached by the Emerson Collective in New America. And they had told us that, uh, that the, they were working with different state governments across the nation on how to improve COVID-19 vaccine communications. So specifically, they wanted us to work with uh, the state of Colorado. So we started working uh, with uh, the Colorado governor's office, with the Colorado Department of Public Health, um, and different branches of, 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 of health departments within the state of Colorado. Uh, and, you know, the problem I think that they presented to us was the problem that I'm sure many <laughs> local governments have, and that, you know, during COVID-19, a lot of money was given to state governments and to organizations to do communications and like, you know, it, it, there definitely wasn't an absence of resources, right? So in the case of Colorado, uh, specifically, they were saying, you know, we're spending thousands and thousands of dollars on translations, on different uh, communications materials, but we feel like it's not getting to the people, specifically when we, when, you know, when you talk about um, immigrant and non-English speaking communities, like whatever, all this money that we have and all this money that we're investing, what we find is that it's just not getting, you know, the message is not getting across, right? So immediately that was my first red flag because I, I understand, you know, translations are very important, but it's not just about doing a translation, it's what are you translating, right? Because when you're only translating these very lengthy, you know, in government, they love to uh, publish fact sheets, which are like 15, 20 pages long fact sheets. And they release that to the public and they expect that the public is going to read through a, like a 20 page document and get all the answers. And, and, you know, and everything is done in, in, in government language. You know what I mean? It's super duper like dense and complicated. So you know, the first step was like, okay, like, what is it that you have? Like, show us what, what you've translated, show us the websites that you've, uh, that you've put up with regards to COVID and COVID-19 vaccines, right? So we started, um, you know, swifting through all the materials. And like I said, uh, you know, these, the, the, the websites were incredibly text heavy. Um, all of the communications was very, very text heavy, right? So then uh, what we did was we, um, we put out a call. We wanted to do what we call user testing. So we wanted to test these materials with real Coloradoans. In this case, they wanted us to focus on immigrants and non-English speaking communities. So we recruited, um, we recruited a group of people, uh, non-English speakers mainly, and, and also English speakers to be honest, but you know, all of immigrant backgrounds. And we started uh, doing these series of interviews where, for example, we asked people, um, what are the biggest concerns that you have about the COVID-19 vaccine? And, you know, the concerns were pretty predictable, right? Number one was, what are the side effects? Number two, um, how long did it take? You know, how long, did, how long were these clinical trials or just what is the length of research that we have behind these vaccines? And uh, number three was, what are the ingredients inside of the vaccine? Sorry, there's like a plank <laughs> passing through me. 
uh, what are the ingredients inside of the vaccine? So um, we sat there, you know, we did this through Zoom. We sat there with, with, uh, with the different participants. And for example, we would ask them, okay, the first question you have are, what are the side effects? How would you search for that answer? And we would see how people would, you know, they'd go on Google and see what the first, you know, what, what were the, and, and the, you know, the, at first it was like, okay, let's just do a simple Google search. What comes up? So you get like those articles on Google. And then the second part, we would direct them to the Colorado government website and the Colorado Department of Health website. And I said, all right, try to find the answer to that question. And, you know, on the English side, it was perhaps a little bit more straightforward. But then when you got into the, for example, the Spanish language website, when you looked at the amount of clicks it took them to get to an answer, it was just, um, it was unacceptable to be honest, because people, when they find that, you know, information is too difficult to get to, they start checking out and they're like, well, this is too complicated, right? So getting to the information was very problematic. And then the next part was that once they got to the information, it was like so overwhelming, so text heavy and, the, and, 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 the, and just the, the, it was just overwhelming for them. You know what I mean? Like, like when they tried to find out about the side effects or when they tried to find out about the ingredients, uh, it was presented to them in a way that, and I understand, you know, scientists and government people, they want to give you all the information. Um, they want to put it all there, like word vomit it there. Um, but for the consumer, it was just too much, too much, right? Um, they didn't understand, most of them didn't understand, didn't get a clear answer as to what uh, their question was, um, and a lot of them, uh, you know, even it, 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 a lot of them, it, it just took them a very long time to get to, to the answer. And then for some, even when they did get to the answer, you know, now we're in a new, in a new era where unfortunately, um, people don't necessarily trust government sources because of this new, you know, this new era that we're in of, of misinformation, of fake news, et cetera. Um, so even when they were, they were presented with, with the answers that they were looking for, we did get, you know, a number of participants that were like, well, how do I trust this source, right? Like, well, how do I know that the government is telling me the truth? So for that part, for our research presented a new challenge, a new, a new thing that we needed to tackle. So, okay, we knew number one already that the information, perhaps it was there, but it was way too difficult to access and way too difficult to digest. So then the new phase of the research was like, all right, um, how, are we gonna, how are we going to get people this information in their hands? Because one of the mistakes that a lot of people in government make is that they think that folks will always run to, you know, the government websites and look for the information. And that's not true. I mean, folks aren't like running to, to, to you know, their Department of Health websites to get information. So you need to get that information, make sure that the information gets to the people, right? Um, that's number one. And then number two, who do they find to be trustworthy, right? So as I said, some respondents were saying that they didn't necessarily trust this as a source, even though it was the government or even the vaccine manufacturers. Um, so then we said, all right, instead of, you know, sh shooting that down, we were like, all right, we started doing research in these target groups and we, and to figure out exactly who it was that they found, they found to be um, reliable sources, right? So we found um, in many communities, of course, they, they, they found, they, they thought that uh, doctors that spoke their languages or that looked like them 
were trustworthy sources. Okay, so there, there we have some trusted messengers that we can target. Um, in, other, in other cases, we found that um, pastors, religious leaders were very trusted sources. I mean, it's incredible uh, how many people with regards to the question of should they get the vaccine or not, they said that they wanted to ask their pastor if they should get the vaccine or not, right? Um, I know that some folks maybe in the science, you know, world, they scoff at that, like, oh, that's ridiculous. But for us in communications, that has to be um, a window of opportunity. It means, okay, then me as a communicator, I need to engage the religious community and how they're going to give this information uh, to their people, basically. So, and then, and then, you know, and then we found other levels of, 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 of trusted messengers, like teachers, a lot of, you know, ESL teachers, for example, um, we're also we're also quite trusted inside of their communities or some interpreters were also quite trusted in their communities. So we identified who were the trusted messengers. And I'll, I'll tell you that not many folks necessarily responded that elected officials were trusted messengers. So, you know, I come from a political communications background. For me, whenever I wanted to push out information or, you know, or announce some news, I always would hit up uh, elected officials or who I thought were the national stakeholders when in reality, you know, you know, when, when, when you work at the national level, like when you work in Washington, D.C., there's all these national Latino groups that are incredibly influential inside of D.C., but once you leave D.C., no one has any idea who these national Latino groups are, right? So we can't rely on who Washington thinks is influential because in the real world, they're not, right? So that mentality of, oh, you know, if the governor says it or if the congressman says it or if the mayor says it, then people will believe it's true. We know that that's not true anymore. You have to go even more grassroots, even more hyper-local, which takes more work, but it just is what it is. So once we identified, um, so, so, so to backtrack a little bit, number one, we, we saw that the information was very hard to digest. And then number two, that the messengers weren't necessarily, that the government wasn't necessarily the best messengers. Okay, so we got one and two. And then step three was, all right, how are we going to um, make this information digestible? And this is a pretty simple answer. I mean, a lot of folks, we live in a digital world. We live in a world primarily of video now, right? Folks are not reading as much as they used to before, right? So we do have to do that transition to video. The thing with video is that some folks think that video has to be like a multi-thousand dollar investment. Like videos have to be expensive or put TV ads and stuff like that. I mean, it, it, I would even argue, and I argue this with, when, when I consult with like political campaigns, it's like you spend so much money on TV ads when people aren't even watching TV anymore, especially young people aren't watching TV anymore. You know what I mean? So we need to like get to their phones. That's where people are, 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 now ingesting, you know, most of their news and really people are just spending most of their day on their phone, right? Not in front of a TV as they used to, which is still important for an older demographic, but like for most folks, they're just not watching TV. And then also demystify the idea that video has to be expensive. Absolutely not. Like, especially in the pandemic, we found out, you know, even CNN was like doing like Zoom, <laughs> almost like Zoom quality broadcasting, you know what I mean? So so it really breaks down that hesitation that some people might have that video is a very expensive investment. No, actually, it can be a very cheap, uh, you know, self-shot uh, 
product if you know, number one, if you identify who are the right messengers, and then the important part where we really put kind of our research and practice was, okay, we've identified these doctors and these religious leaders. Now what we need to do is equip them with the tools, the training, the information that they need so then they can become what I like to call micro-influencers inside of their own community, right? I'm not, so like, if people already have kind of their, when you look at social media, right? You look at how many people follow you on Instagram or how many people follow you on YouTube, right? Um, you already have a natural audience that follows you. So it's not like you have to, you know, necessarily build an audience for these people. They like doctors already, if, they, if, they, if they're active on social media, they already have a captive audience. What we can do, you know, the support that we needed to give them, these doctors and these religious leaders is number one, we needed to give them prompts as to what are these videos that they, we wanted them to shoot. So it was very simple what we did. We took those fact sheets and those like complicated websites and we made essentially like video prompts with scripts. So instead of, for example, instead of like having to swift through a 20 page fact sheet to understand what was the clinical trial process for the vaccines or what were the ingredients inside of the vaccine, what we told these uh, messengers that we recruited was, we're gonna make different videos. We're gonna make one, maybe 60 or, uh, 60 second or 120 second video about the ingredients. So we pulled from that fact sheet and we created a mini script and then they went and self shot those videos and shared it on their social media. And it was like incredibly successful. Like people were, you know, so receptive to it because they were doing it in their languages. It was from a member of the community that they trusted and it gave them. And so us as the, as the, as the, as the comms experts, let's just say, our job was just to take the information that the government had published in a very complicated way, you know, package it and then give it to the messenger so then they could go on. And of course, you know, our job is just to make sure that they're giving factual data, that the information that they're, that they're giving is, is, is correct and it's clear. And then they can go and do it in their style, in their language, to their audience, whatever. Another step that, you know, we didn't really get to test, but it's something that we want to test in the future is how can we support these micro influencers to grow their, you know, their, their, their social media network? So, you know, can we buy, you know, can we boost their, their videos on Facebook ads or how can we make sure that we drive more traffic to their pages? And frankly, for this project, we didn't have enough time to, to then working, you know, to start testing the, the sort of the crowd growth strategy, but at least the early results that we saw where we were able to get complicated information repackage it and identify the appropriate messengers in the different communities so then that they can go and shoot the videos and 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 share the information um for us it was it, it was very it was it gave very promising results and 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 i thought it was pretty cool <laughs> oh, that's that's amazing <laughs> just all that work i mean and actually it's it's funny because you're talking about it not funny but it reminds me of a lot of that stuff the experiences you went through in in that area is similar stuff that we experience in clinical research i would say right i think we can all agree to um and it would be great i think we run into the same issues where there's so much information out there but it's very technical how do we get it to the people in a simpler format and that's that's what we're trying to hopefully do and change in the future for clinical research 
Yeah. yeah after after hearing your story, after reading uh, your uh, biography, and also I watched some videos of interviews that you had in the past. Exactly, I I will say that it's very similar the the um the issues that um, politics have uh, is very similar to clinical trials, yeah. and and it's because uh, I mean. This is what I think, right? <laughs> I think it's because uh, people don't trust any anymore politicians and people don't trust pharmaceutical companies. So uh, there is, there is. I mean, we're experiencing the same issues. And at the same time, when you were talking about the research that you did, it relates so much to what we're doing right now because uh, we've been noticing a uh, through our experience that the best way to communicate with the communities is with people that speak the same language, with people that they trust. Mm -hmm. So it's basically the same thing that you found in your uh, research. So it's fascinating to see it and to know that there is research about it that is basically putting uh, our, um, our thoughts and our projects uh, it is giving like some more perspective and it's, it's giving us also assurance that that's the way it should be. And that's the way we're doing it. We're educating population about it. We're being honest. We're being genuine. We're uh, been bringing uh, people from the community to speak about it. Uh, we're educating uh, the community. We're educating children. We're educating adults. We're educating young population about it. Uh, and it's, and it's uh, trying to to bring that trust that in some point uh, just vanish. <laughs> so we have to work really hard on it, but it seems that it's, it's not only us doing it, so it's, it's fascinating to hear that. And in one of your interviews, you were saying that um, that the young um, uh, population ha feels disconnect with uh, politics. Yeah. And, and you were mentioning that the vote is our uh, is our uh, voice, right? And I feel the same. Is it relates also to clinical trials, because uh, participating in clinical trials is a way to. I mean, it's kind of the voice too, because if we participate in clinical trials, we're making sure that our community is included. Our community is included in the results. Our community is included. The data is included. So it's it's as important. And, and, and I think, uh, um, I mean, that's fascinating. Um, I have a question. <laughs> what was the most challenging part that you guys find out or that you think is uh, to communicate topics like ours? I mean, this kind of topics that are so sensitive to the Latino community. Well, I think, and I think the interesting thing about clinical trials uh, specifically is, you know, with the COVID vaccine, like you, like Cassandra mentioned, um, you know, folks all of a sudden had this heightened interest on clinical trials, something that they've never even thought before. And a lot of folks that we interviewed, even when we presented them the data of the clinical trials of the vaccine, they wanted to know how many people of that sample were Latino or were African-American or they wanted to know if it was tested on their people, not just these like abstract you know, participants. Um, so I think that now there is a heightened interest, I'm not saying that like now all of a sudden people are like super interested on clinical trials, but they want to know exactly, you know, what do these samples look like? Who was the, you know, 
who's participating in these clinical trials. But I think the most challenging thing uh, for us, which it wasn't like a, a shocker, but it's challenging nonetheless, is that even when you presented people with, let's just say the, 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 the right data with the correct data from, from the scientists, from the government, that, even that they didn't trust it. Even like, you know, when you, when you gave them the information, they were just still like, but who is like, who came up with this data, right? Like they weren't trusting it. So that, I mean, I think that there needs to be, when you think about, you know, communications and like I said, like so much money has been spent on COVID communications and, you know, I think it's been successful. A lot of people are getting vaccinated and everything, but I think we're missing the mark in that a lot of the communications was pretty traditional in like, let's just do ads and, you know, TV spots and a lot of flyers and this and that, when I think part of that money and a lot of the research needs to be focused on what is this internet ecosystem that we're in, right? Like, what does this ecosystem look like? If I want to communicate to, and it's not just like Latinos, right? Because even the word Latinos is like so broad, right? Like, if I want to communicate to Colombians, for example, what are you know, I, I always talk about YouTube in a lot of my interviews because to me, YouTube is is what's up right now. Like YouTube is where I know a lot of young people are using, you know, they're hooked on YouTube all day. Uh, all older folks, you know, folks, everybody's on YouTube now, like more than CNN or, you know, MSNBC. So let's say that I want to communicate something to Colombians, Colombian Americans. I want to know, you know, who are the YouTube personalities that are Colombian American? Like, who are these people, right? And if we're talking about something in healthcare, are there famous Colombian doctors, right, that have huge YouTube followings? Because those are the people that I want to engage. You know, the folks that are watching CNN and Nightly News, those people are already engaged. Like, I don't have to worry about them as much. I'm not saying that you can't continue to communicate to mainstream media and they should absolutely, you know, of course, you have to, you know, feed the information to them. But I think that a lot of people in communication, especially when they're, you know, at high level communications, let's just say, they kind of see, they still have this idea that social media is kind of like this, oh, it's just memes and, you know, and YouTube is just makeup influencers and not at all. I mean, YouTube has changed dramatically, right? Um, for example, during this pandemic, uh, this is a little it's not public health related, but um, the Small Business Administration, for example, all of these small business loans or unemployment benefits, right? The government had no idea how to communicate, you know, how people should access all of these benefits, you know, how they should apply to um, unemployment and such. But what we saw was a huge, like, really fascinating surge of YouTube personalities, you know, made up of accountants and stuff like that, that were almost every day or at least every week explaining to people, okay, guys, this is what's being, you know, like fought in Congress. And this is what it means for your unemployment benefits, or this is what it means, you know, with the PPP loans, this is how small businesses can apply to PPP. So people were turning more to YouTube than actually news on how they could access all of these different benefits. Right. So it goes back to my original point. You can't expect people to come to you for the information. You have to meet them where they are. Uh, so that's why I think there needs to be, you know, more thorough research on 
what does this internet ecosystem look like for the folks that we're targeting? You know, what are the Facebook pages? What are the, the, the again, like the YouTube channels? Um, are there big WhatsApp groups? WhatsApp, it's much harder to track than other, um, than other social media um, outlets. But, but we just, I think folks in communications, you know, when I used to be in comms in the government, I had a list of, okay, these are the reporters that I target for this, or these are my stakeholders for that, right? We need to have those same lists, but for YouTube, for <laughs> all of these different outlets, because that's where people are now, you know, plugging themselves in for information. I mean, I don't know if, if what your experience is, but I fixed my oven the other day just by going on YouTube. You know what I mean? Like all of these things, you learn anything you want, you can find it there. So us, um, as communicators, we really need to get a better handle as to how to use that to our advantage. And I don't know if it answered your question, but again, like, like you said, the biggest challenge is that people just don't trust official sources as much anymore. So then we need to figure out who are the people that folks are following. And, you know, obviously you're not going to go work with the crazies, conspiracy theorists, but there's a lot of good people. There are a lot of good doctors, you know, on TikTok even that you could engage and see, okay, what do you need? Like, what kind of information do you need? And, you know, when we were doing this research for the COVID-19 vaccine, we found that folks just want to be told, or they just want to be given the information in a, in a packaged and simple to that, you know, so they don't have to be doing, wasting so much time doing the research themselves. So, okay, be like, okay, I'll do the research for you. I'll give you the information and then you do the video and, and share it with your people. Because it's, it's true. I mean, it's incredible how much time um, some of these, um, you know, online personalities spend doing the research on their own. Okay, like, let's cut that out of the equation and just provide them the information so then they can share it. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And it's funny you mentioned YouTube because that's actually how I learned about, like, I follow a CPA and a financial advisor to learn about everything that's happened in the past year, all these things that come out that affect small business. Because you go to these regulations on the, like, SBA, and I don't know, like, it's a 20-page document, 50. I don't, like, I have a financial background, but I don't know how to break it down. So I just listen to these guys, and then they tell you where to go and what to do, and then that's what I would do. That's how I learned. So it's amazing that you talk about that and so if we can take that into clinical research and somehow you know within our sites within our communities be able to use all these different things you mentioned in the right way now it's just implementing it and actually getting to that that I think a lot of us have um, I don't want to say trouble with but how do we do it you know which way how do we start with because we want to get this information out there to our patients in our communities but I think we need support too, like from sponsored CROs with clinical trials to do this. So I hope they actually get to listen and hear what you mentioned and hopefully make a change in the future and, and take some of those suggestions you mentioned to improve the communications. Yeah, and I think with clinical research, you know, it's really destigmatized it. It's like so unknown to most people mm -hmm. what clinical research. So no, something as simple as like, you know, if, if, if you know you're going to go into a clinical trial, asking some of the participants, hey, can you just like with your phone self shoot your whole experience and like shoot a couple of videos of what you're going through. And then, you know, it's break, it, it, it's providing that transparency. So, you know, people are like, oh, that that's what a clinical trial is. So they're not like doing experiments on, on people. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Like I remember in the early times of the vaccine, um, when 
AOC, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she, you know, got with her phone, she just kind of filmed herself doing, you know, getting the vaccine, how she was feeling a couple hours later, and she kept, and that thing got shared so widely, and it was so much more effective than maybe like a $10,000 TV ad about mm. the vaccine. Like, people don't care about these flashy ads. They want real people like you and me. You know, I want to see what, Jose, like, I want to see what happens to that person first before I go and do it. And then when those people show, okay, everything is fine, like, this is the process, then people feel, you know, more comfortable. But one of the things that I, that, that, that I figured is that people don't want to be told what to do. They just want to be given the information in a way that's understandable. So we got to, you know, switch the mentality of like, we got to tell people to do this. No, okay, what information do they need? And how can we give it to them in a way that's digestible and understandable? So then they feel comfortable making the decision that they want to make. But we're not going to tell you what decision to make, but here's all the information you need. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that's what I think some of us are like my personal site. I think that's what we're trying to do. Actually, a week ago, we recorded a few videos where I took the information on all these pamphlets, you know, of information about clinical trials and broke it down. Okay, like we're going to do these 30 second like videos. And how can we I haven't seen the edited stuff yet because our, our our, um, the one of our social media person is working on it, but that's what we're trying to do. And so I'm not, you know, I don't have this communication background, but I already knew the past couple of years, this is something we needed to do, but how do we do it? And so we're doing it in steps and hopefully I think we can get that information out there, but I think that's what we need to do in the community, clinical research community, just break it down, probably do videos like that. This is what it's like coming to a research center. This is what you're going to do. This is what a consent is like breaking it down. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Like, like I said, a lot of people spend so much money on the production value. Mm-hmm. Like, it has to be shot nice. And no, spend that money on, you know, on ads, on how mm-hmm. to amplify that video, how to boost that video. Uh, you know, uh, every every different um, outlet has its own little tricks. Like, you know, when sh- at what time should you post a TikTok video or this or that? So, you know, you definitely need the people that understand how, mm-hmm. how the different outlets work so that you can get the maximum, um, the maximum engagement. But I, I, what I tell people all the time, it's like, this does not have to be an expensive, mm-hmm. you know, venture. It can be done in a very, at a very low budget if you just right. know how to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, we're going to try that. <laughs> No, yeah, I agree. I think it's fascinating just to see that, like you said, like maybe we get hyped up on making everything perfect and making the lighting look great. And really all they need to see is a real person that kind of looks like them that's, you know, doing the same things they are. And it's just, they, they went through it and it's okay. And so if they're okay, then I'm okay. I think another interesting aspect of it is not just, you know, the, the community and the population in terms of how they were receptive to the information and things like that. But with all this information, how did like the health, the public health um, representatives and the, the, not the Hispanic, but the public elected officials, like those people that, that are targeting these, these populations, like what was their biggest takeaway? Because I think that's similar to what we're doing with Latinos in clinical research, right? Like a lot of us are at the site level, um, but how do we communicate to maybe the sponsors and the CROs and all the others where they understand it's important, but they really don't know what to do or why? What, what, what did you find with that? I think that would be really interesting. You know, I think that, um, well, speaking at the government level, I think that a lot of um, government communication staffers, they're so 
tied up with the day-to-day, -day, the rapid response, that they don't really have time to think about what they might think is like a little YouTube project. You know what I mean? So they're just like, they're just like, I just need to like, you know, I used to be a, a government comms person. So for me, it was like, I need to like, just keep my, my beat reporters happy and informed. And so much of my time is sucked up with having to like, you know, handle those press relationships that they don't have a lot of time to think about, um, about social media. And then the social media people, you know, they're just, their time is tied up in like, you know, growing the following of their boss's page or the department of health's page. So, you know, the, 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 the amount of, I guess that we just need more resources or maybe like, you know, reallocate staff to do the, 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 the necessary research into really understanding, for example, like if I am, if I'm in a, in, in Florida, for example, like I want to know, like, what does the Florida social media landscape look like? Like, and it's different for each different demographic, but like, who's on YouTube, who's on Twitter, how that, that, you know what I mean? The way that we have such a thorough understanding on who are the reporters and what are the social media, or sorry, what are the mainstream media outlets, print, radio, um, TV, you know, like we have those lists. We need to have similar lists, but for the internet. And I think that sometimes with government, you know, with everything in government, they're so slow. They're so behind on everything. You know, government's just so behind on like every, the, the way they do everything. So I think, I think that the, um, to be honest, the staffers were all very receptive and they really loved our research. But what they said to us was like, we don't have the capacity. Like we're already trying to, you know, feed the mainstream media beast to now have to think about like, how do we feed the internet beast when you got to feed both, but also understand that actually most people are more on this side, on the, on the internet side now, more so than actual mainstream media. So I think that, um, you know, communications departments have to start maybe not to do like a full shift, but like reallocating some staffers to look at, at, at communications. And I'm not seeing, I'm not even saying in a new way, I'm saying in the way that it is right now, because the truth of the matter is that folks, I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw CNN, to be honest, like, unless it's like somebody has it on in the background. Yes, I read the, you know, the New York Times and stuff like that. But a lot of my time, incredibly so, is actually spent on YouTube or is spent on uh, maybe Twitter and such like that. But, but when, you know, I, again, I'm, a, I'm mainly a video person, so I think about video mainly. Um, but yeah, but like what happens on TikTok, what happens on YouTube? I mean, I know some people scoff at it, like, oh, TikTok's just for like little kids or whatever. But, it, you know, a, a lot is happening on there. A lot of conversation is happening on there. I think the, the fascinating thing for me about YouTube with these YouTube folks is that, you know, kind of like Anderson Cooper on CNN, they have, he has his captive audience and his followers. So do these people, you know what I mean? And these people will sit there, you know, their, their followers will sit there and watch a 30 minute video of whatever this person uploads and they'll watch it day after day, after day, after day. So they have very captive audiences that you cannot ignore. So um, again, I mean, I think that, I think that like, you know, communications is really having a, uh, an evolution. And as a comms person, it, the reason I do the work that I do is because in 2016, when we got our butts kicked um, in the Hillary campaign by Trump, um, 
all if you guys re remember like all of the mainstream outlets had like hillary winning by a landslide you know what i mean all if you looked at all that like we were gonna win we had this but i remember at the time when i was in florida i was like what i see on the tv is very different than what i'm seeing on the internet like there's two different worlds happening here you know and um i think you know back in 16, we were still kind of naive to what fake news was and misinformation was. So we kind of believed that people are not going to believe that. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's just, now we see like the monster that it is, you know what I mean? And I think even in 2020, I mean, we won by like a little smidget, you know what I mean? Like that was God, even though like the popular vote was whatever, but like, it still was God, you know what I mean? Like it still wasn't a comfortable victory in my, in, in my book. And I think it's because folks that are making communications decisions at very high levels still haven't given the internet the importance that it merits. They still want to operate in kind of that traditional mindset that what the New York Times says or what MSNBC or CNN or whatever says, it's, it's what most people follow. And that's just not the truth anymore. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, that's totally right in terms of um, I think everyone, there's also this whole thing where you just don't know, like misinformation, right? A lot of people don't know what is, what is true and what's not true anymore. I think there's a fine line of, of misinformation just kind of crossing both boundaries and people are like, well, yeah, that's true because so-and-so said it. And, you know, there's, that's a whole different other animal in terms of how to combat misinformation when it comes to this, you know, the vaccines and clinical trials in general and just, um, just overall fake news and, and it's just it's really hard to kind of differentiate what what you're being told is actually factual or not especially when you say that the if the information is coming from the government is factual people don't even believe it so it's it's i think that's a whole different animal but but yeah i think it's it's fascinating to hear the work that you guys have done in terms of um really what are some of the strategies that people can take to really communicate and get more non-English speaking uh, participants as part of any campaign, right? I mean, right now we're talking about communications and public health, and we're also talking about, you know, how it relates to the clinical trial world, but in general, um, what, whether you're communicating, whatever it is, you know, it really goes back to understanding the audience, understanding the community, and understanding who are those key stakeholders within those communi communities to be able to be that voice. Um, and it's not always the celebrities and it's not always the politicians and it's not always these people that have a megaphone. It's maybe sometimes the people that know five or six people, but it has a ripple effect in the, in the local community. So it's fascinating. I think this is a, a key takeaway to be able to share with, with the clinical research community. I don't know what you think, um, co-founders of Latinos in Clinical Research, but how, how what we've learned today can really relate and what tips we can give to those in the clinical research industry. Cause we hear it all the time. People say, well, mm -hmm. well, how do I communicate? What do I do? You know, like what is the best way? I mean, we hear from someone that's a Sinoda or Valentina that's in, you know, in the Midwest. And he says, I have a Latino population here that I know I can recruit these patients for my trials. But I don't know how to do it. And it's kind of scary. Like what are the ways to do it? And so there's, there are, I think, many opportunities of taking what you, we've learned today from you and just putting it into action. I guess we'll see how many people are going to create YouTube videos now. Judy's starting already. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely a great advice um, information you gave us. I think we all learned something 
happening today. And hopefully, as, as Cassandra mentioned, that everybody who watches this video will take some of that information and do something with it, implement it, whether if they're a science-sponsored CRO. But I think it's it's a, a great conversation for us to have because then it's gonna we're going to take this information back and look at, okay, what can we change now that I got this information? Can I do something different? Maybe I can do something that I thought I couldn't do at my site level or CRO, and maybe it won't be that costly. Um, it does take, I think, a team. <laughs> you do need a, a team communications outreach, all of that, but I think it definitely will open up, um, hopefully, um, more of this conversation on what we can do and change the way that we used to do things to recruit or advertise and maybe, yeah, like focus more on on within the communities, outreach, these on um, like YouTube and stuff like that. And it's not like an overnight, like people, I'm not saying that you're gonna like upload a YouTube video, and you're gonna get thousands of views. But the point, I think that the, the point that I always tell, you know, people and clients is like, we need to start investing on, on, these, on these online voices. You know, we need to start building credibility of these different, you know, YouTube or whatever uh, personalities that then organically start building their following and then they'll know, you know, oh, Judy on, you know, has this YouTube channel talking about uh, clinical trials. Like, I know I want to go to her, you know what I mean? But it takes time. It takes investment. It takes time. Um, but I'm telling you, like, not to say the, the, the right, but like the other side, the misinformation, the people that are pushing the conspiracy theories, they've been doing that for years. They have their big names, you know, well-established, they're Shapiro's of the world, you know, done and done. They've been, they got it. Like back in the day, they got it. And now I feel like other folks are trying to catch up to it. And so it's, it's not an overnight success, but it is the new frontier. And you're really missing out a lot if you're not, you know, in, in investing on, on this side of communication. So... Yeah, and you know what, and I, it's funny because a perfect example of what you just described is kind of what Dan has done with his YouTube channel and his videos. I think he said it took him several years to, you know, set it up and get established. And his main purpose was to try to get more patients for his studies, but it actually ended up being to pretty much educate the clinical research community and, you know, put a bunch of information out there. So exactly what he's done for to get more people into clinical research industry, if we could do that, but maybe to recruit more patients, to educate more patients, exactly. And so he's a perfect example of exactly what you just described. We need more dance. Mm -hmm. Like, we need a bunch of dance, you know, like, all over, you know, feeding the right information. So, mm -hmm. That's what we tr we're trying to do also with Latinos in clinical research. Somehow we're doing videos, we're doing, we're giving people information, we're educating the population about it. So, I mean, but like uh, 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 Cassandra was saying, we just started back in November. So, but, but we're still, I mean, we've been working really hard on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Got it. I mean, people are going to get interested. Um, and uh, yeah. And of course, with clinical research, I, I imagine like you know, there always has to be like an economic incentive for recruitment because <laughs> people aren't just not going to donate their body to science out of their kindness of their own heart. So, you know, just being clear about that, of course, the economic incentive side. But I think that the more videos they see of other folks that look like them going through the process of a clinical trial, then the more folks will want to, um, you know, participate. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, this was great information. And 
I can't wait to go back and see what we can change and implement <laughs> and try to do and hopefully, um, yeah, take all this information and others will do something with it too. Yeah, thank you so much, Valentina. Chris, do you have any extra questions or something to say? No, she, she covered everything that I could possibly think of. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was a very interesting. Uh, I think it's the very first interview that we do like this. And, uh, and, uh, and you brought a lot of uh, new uh, stuff or, new, or great information to the table. So thank you very much, uh, Valentina, for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, keep up the great work because we know our community, we are huge consumers of medication. So <laughs> we absolutely need our people to be, you know, part of these trials to be, you know, testing uh, this medication. And like I said, I mean, at least from my research um, with the COVID-19 vaccine, folks wanted to know if this had been tested on our people that look like us too and it gives them that that you know that trust so definitely yeah your team does is, is critically important yeah that's that's important um, obviously most of people want to know uh, or want to make sure that our community is involved but a lot of these people don't participate in clinical trials so it's important that they trust uh, the process mm -hmm. too because if we if we don't participate then uh, where those numbers are going to come from, or where those data, where is that data going to be coming from? So we, uh, that's that's the main thing, and that's the the grassroots. We need to explain. Uh, we need to uh, build trust and uh, make sure that people understand uh, the process of this and the importance of participating in clinical trials. Well, thank you, Valentina, so much. Uh, thank you, Valentina Pereda, for joining us on Latinos in Clinical Research. And uh, we just can't wait to see all the feedback that we get from, from the members and the participants and everyone that sees this information. So that way uh, they can ripple effect and spread the good word and, and see how it, how it impacts their recruitment campaigns or just their campaigns in general. So thank you for your time. We are very grateful. Um, we appreciate it very much. And we'll go ahead and I think stop the recording. Yeah, Valentina, one last thing. Uh, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, how would you want them to contact you? <laughs> yeah, if anybody I, has a question or... It's so funny because I do research on all things like social media and I'm barely on social media. Like my LinkedIn is like, <laughs> it's so bad. I need to like update my LinkedIn. But yes, you can contact me on LinkedIn, Valentina Pereira, I'm there. I have like, I think a black and white photo. And then you can find me on Twitter at Valentina Pereira. Um, yes, those are the two uh, best ways, uh, but it is embarrassing as somebody that, that works in this space, how little social media I use. <laughs> <laughs> it well, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. So everybody just remember share, to share this video and, and uh, keep it, let's keep educating our community.